Hello again, I'm Richard Figge, and this is for Reading Out Loud. Thanks for joining me this evening. In response to requests for the occasional longer narrative, here is the first in a three-part series. It comes at the special request of a dear friend who told me that it was the central section of a longer novel, but he assured me that it also stood perfectly well alone. I knew the author, who has been featured here a couple of times, but the book was new to me. The book is The Professor's House by Willa Cather. I read the book, and my friend was right. The story can stand alone, and the writing is a pleasure to read and savor. I've sometimes reflected that what makes a book outstanding, at least for me, is that it takes you to a place that is completely new to you and makes it real and memorable. I think that is what Willa Cather achieved in Tom Outland's story. This one goes out with warm thanks to my friend Rick. Sit back and enjoy. The Professor's House, Book Two, Tom Outland's Story, by Willa Cather. The thing that sidetracked me and made me so late coming to college was a somewhat unusual accident or string of accidents. It began with a poker game when I was a call boy in Pardee, New Mexico. One cold, clear night in the fall, I started out to hunt up a freight crew that was to go out soon after midnight. It was just after payday, and one of the fellows had tipped me off that there would be a poker game going on in the card room behind the Ruby Light Saloon. I knew most of my crew would be there, except Conductor Willis, who had a sick baby at home. The front windows were dark, of course. I went up the back alley, through a tumble-down ice house and a court, into a dobe room that didn't open into the saloon proper at all. It was crowded and hot and stuffy enough. There were six or seven in the game, and a crowd of fellows were standing about the walls rubbing the whitewash off onto their coat shoulders. There was a birdcage hanging in one window, covered with an old flannel shirt, but the canary had wakened up and was singing away for dear life. He was a beautiful singer. An old Mexican had trained him and he was one of the attractions of the place. I happened along when a jackpot was running. Two of the fellows I'd come for were in it, and they naturally wanted to finish the hand. I stood by the door with my watch, keeping time for them. Among the players I saw two sheepmen who always liked a lively game, and one of the bystanders told me you had to buy a hundred dollars worth of chips to get in that night. The crowd was fussing about one fellow, Rodney Blake, who had come in from his engine without cleaning up. That wasn't customary. The minute a man got in from his run, he took a bath, put on citizen's clothes, and went to a barber. This Blake was a new fireman on our division. He'd come up town in his greasy overalls and sweaty blue shirt, with his face streaked up with smoke. He'd been drinking, he smelled of it, and his eyes were out of focus. All the other men were clean and freshly shaved. They were sore at Blake, said his hands were so greasy they marked the cards. Some of them wanted to put him out of the game, but he was a big, heavy-built fellow, and nobody wanted to be the man to do it. It didn't please them any better when he took the jackpot. I got my two men and hurried them out, and two others from the row along the wall took their places. One of the chaps who left with me asked me to go up to his house and get his grip with his work clothes. He'd lost every cent of his paycheck and didn't want to face his wife. I asked him who was winning. 
Blake. The dirty boomer's been taking everything. But the fellows will clean him out before morning. About two o'clock, when my work for that night was over, and I was going home to sleep, I just dropped in at the card room to see how things had come out. The game was breaking up. Since I left them at midnight, they had changed to stud poker, and Blake, the fireman, had cleaned everybody out. He was cashing in his chips when I came in. The bank was a little short, but Blake made no fuss about it. He had something over sixteen hundred dollars lying on the table before him in banknotes and gold. Some of the crowd were insulting him, trying to get him into a fight and loot him. He paid no attention and began to put the money away, not looking at anybody. The bills he folded and put inside the band of his hat. He filled his overall pockets with gold and swept the rest of it into his big red neckerchief. I'd been interested in this fellow ever since he came on our division. He was close-mouthed and unfriendly. He was one of those fellows with a settled, mature body and a young face, such as you often see among working men. There was something calm and sarcastic and mocking about his expression. That, too, you often see among working men. When he had put all his money away, he got up and walked toward the door without a word, without saying good night to anybody. "'Manners of a hog and a dirty hog!' little Barney Shea yelled after him. Blake's back was just in the doorway. He hitched up one shoulder, but didn't turn or make a sound. I slipped out after him and followed him down the street. His walk was unsteady, and the gold in his baggy overalls pockets clinked with every step he took. I ran a little way and caught up with him. "'What are you going to do with all that money, Blake?' I asked him. "'Lose it tomorrow night. I'm no hog for money. Damn barber-pole dudes.' I thought I'd better follow him home. I knew he lodged with an old Mexican woman in the yellow quarter behind the roundhouse. His room opened onto the sky by a sky-blue door. He went in, didn't strike a light or make a stab at undressing, but threw himself just as he was on the bed and went to sleep. His hat stuck between the iron rods of the bedhead, the gold ran out of his pockets and rolled over the bare floor in the dark. I struck a match and lit a candle. The bed took up half the room. On the dresser was a grip with his clean clothes in it, just as he'd brought it in from his run. I took out the clothes and began picking up the money, got the bills out of his hat, emptied his pockets, and collected the coins that lay in the hollow of the bed about his hips and put it all into the grip. Then I blew out the light and sat down to listen. I trusted all the boys who were at the ruby light that night, except Barney Shea. He might try to pull something off on a stranger down in Mexican town. We had a quiet night, however, and a cold one. I found Blake's winter overcoat hanging on the wall and wrapped up in it. I wasn't a bit sorry when the roosters began to crow and the dogs began barking all over Mexican town. At last the sun came up and turned the desert and the doby town red in a minute. I began to shake the man on the bed. Waking men who didn't want to get up was part of my job, and I didn't let up on him until I had him on his feet. "'Hello, kid. Come to call me?' I told him I'd come to call him to a Harvey House breakfast. "'You owe me a good one.' I brought you home last night. Sure, I'm glad to have company. Wait till I wash up a bit. 
He took his soap and towel and comb and went out into the patio, a neat little sanded square with flowers and vines all around, and washed at the trough under the pump. Then he called me to come and pump water on his head. After he'd stood the gush of cold water for a few seconds, he straightened up with his teeth chattering. "'That ought to get the whiskey out of a fellow's head, oughtn't it? Felt good, Tom.' Presently he began feeling his side pockets. "'Was I dreaming something, or did I take a string of jackpots last night?' "'The money's in your grip,' I told him. "'You don't deserve it, for you were too drunk to care of it. I had to come after you and pick it up out of the mud.' "'All right. I'll go Havers. Easy come, easy go.' I told him I didn't want anything off him but breakfast, and I wanted that pretty soon. "'Go easy, son. I gotta change my shirt. This one's wet. It's worse than wet. You oughtn't to go uptown without changing. You're a stranger here, and it makes a bad impression.' He shrugged his shoulders and looked superior. He had a square-built, honest face, and steady eyes that didn't carry a cynical expression very well. I knew he was a decent chap, though he'd been drinking and acting ugly ever since he'd been on our division. After breakfast he went out and sat in the sun at a place where the wooden sidewalk ran over a sand gully and made a sort of bridge. I had a long talk with him. I was carrying the grip with his winnings in it, and I finally persuaded him to go with me to the bank. We put every cent of it into a savings account that he couldn't touch for a year. From that night Blake and I were fast friends. He was the sort of fellow who can do anything for somebody else and nothing for himself. There are lots like that among working men. They aren't trained by success to a sort of systematic selfishness. Rodney had been unlucky in personal relations. He'd run away from home when he was a kid because his mother married again, a man who had been paying attention to her while his father was still alive. He got engaged to a girl down on the Southern Pacific, and she double-crossed him, as he said. He went to old Mexico and let his friends put all his savings into an oil well, and they skinned him. What he needed was a pal, a straight fellow to give an account to. I was ten years younger, and that was an advantage. He liked to be an older brother. I suppose the fact that I was kind of stray and had no family made it easier for him to unbend to me. He surely got to think a lot of me, and I did of him. In that winter I had pneumonia. Mrs. O'Brien couldn't do much for me. She was overworked, poor woman, with a house full of children. Blake took me down to his room, and he and the old Mexican woman nursed me. He ought to have had boys of his own to look after. Nature's full of such substitutions, but they always seem to me sad, even in botany. I wasn't able to be about until spring— and then the doctor and Father Duchesne said I must give up night work and live in the open all summer. Before I knew anything about it, Blake had thrown up his job on the Santa Fe and got a berth for him and me with the Sitwell Cattle Company. Jonas Sitwell was one of the biggest cattlemen in our part of New Mexico. Roddy and I were to ride the range with a bunch of grass cattle all summer, then take them down to a winter camp on the Cruzados River and keep them on pasture until spring. We went out about the first of May, and joined our cattle twenty miles south of Pardee, down toward the Blue Mesa. The Blue Mesa was one of the landmarks we always saw from Pardee. Landmarks mean so much in a flat country. 
To the northwest, over toward Utah, we had the Mormon Buttes, three sharp blue peaks that always sat there. The Blue Mesa was south of us, and it was much stronger in color, almost purple. People said the rock itself had a deep purplish cast. It looked from our town like a naked blue rock set down alone in the plain, almost square, except that the top was higher at one end. The old settlers said nobody had ever climbed it because the sides were so steep and the Cruzados River wound round it at one point and undercut it. Blakewell and I knew that the Sitwell winter camp was down on the Cruzados River, directly under the mesa, and all summer long, while we drifted about with our cattle from one waterhole to another, we planned how we were going to climb the mesa and be the first men up there. After supper, when we lit our pipes and watched the sunset, climbing the mesa was our staple topic of conversation. Our job was a cinch. The actual work wouldn't have kept one man busy. The Sitwell people were good to their hands. John Rapp, the foreman, came along once a month in his spring wagon to see how the cattle were doing and to bring us supplies and bundles of old newspapers. Blake was a conscientious reader of newspapers. He always wanted to know what was going on in the world, though most of it displeased him. He brooded on the great injustices of his time, the hanging of the anarchists in Chicago, which he could just remember, and the Dreyfus case. We had long arguments about what we read in the papers, but we never quarreled. The only trouble I had with Blake was in getting to do my share of the work. He made my health a pretext for taking all the heavy chores long after I was as well as he was. I brought my Caesar along, and had promised Father Duchesne to read a hundred lines a day. Blake saw that I did it, made me translate the dull stuff aloud to him. He said if I once knew Latin, I wouldn't have to work with my back all my life like a burrow. He had great respect for education, but he believed it was some kind of hocus-pocus that enabled a man to live without work. We had Robinson Crusoe with us, and Roddy's favorite book, Gulliver's Travels, which he never tired of. In late October, Rapp, the foreman, came along to accompany us down to the winter camp. Blake stayed with the cattle about fifteen miles to the east, where the grass was still good, and Rapp and I went down to air out the cabin and store away our winter supplies. Chapter 2 The cabin stood in a little grove of pinions, about thirty yards back from the Cruzados River, facing south, and sheltered on the north by a low hill. The grama grass grew right up to the doorstep, and the rabbits were running about, and the grasshoppers hitting the door when we pulled up and looked at the place. There was no litter around. It was as clean as a prairie dog's house. No outbuildings except a shed for our horses. The hillside behind was sandy and covered with tall clumps of deerhorn cactus, but there was nothing but grass to the south, with streaks of bright yellow rabbit brush. Along the river the cottonwoods and quaking asps had already turned to gold. Just across from us, overhanging us indeed, stood the mesa, a pile of purple rock all broken out with red sumac and yellow aspens up in the high crevices of the cliffs. From the cabin, night and day, you could hear the river where it made a bend round the foot of the mesa and churned over the rocks. 
It was the sort of place a man would like to stay in forever. I helped Rap open the wooden shutters and sweep out the cabin. We put clean blankets on the bunks and stowed away bacon and coffee and canned stuff on the shelves behind the cook stove. I confess I looked forward to cooking on an iron stove with four holes. Rap explained to me that Blake and I wouldn't be able to enjoy all this luxury for a time. He wanted the herd kept some distance to the north as long as the grass held out up there, and Robbie and I could take turnabout, one camping near the cattle and one sleeping in a bed. "'There's not pasture enough down here to take them through a long winter,' he said, "'and it's safest to keep them grazing up north while you can. "'Besides, if you bring them down here while the weather's so warm, "'they get skittish, and that mesa over there makes trouble. "'They swim the river and bolt into the mesa, "'and that's the last you ever see of them. "'We've lost a lot of critters that way. "'The mesa has been populated by runaways from our herd, "'till now there's a fine bunch of wild cattle up there.' When the wind's right, our cows over here get the scent of them and make a break for the river. You'll have to watch them close when you bring them down. I asked him whether nobody had ever gone over to get the lost cattle out. Rap glared at me. Out of that mesa? Nobody has ever gotten into it yet. The cliffs are like the base of a monument all the way around. The only way into it is through that deep canyon that opens on the water level just where the river makes the bend. You can't get in by that, because the river's too deep to ford and too swift to swim. Oh, I suppose a horse could swim it, if cattle can, but I don't want to be the man to try. I remarked that I'd had my eye on the mesa all summer and meant to climb it. Not while you're working for the Sitwell Company, you don't. If you boys try any nonsense of that sort, I'll fire you quick. You'll break your bones and lose the herd for us. You have to watch them close to keep them from going over, I tell you. If it wasn't for that mesa, this would be the best winter range in all New Mexico. After the foreman left us, we settled down to easy living and fine weather, blue and gold days, and clear, frosty nights. We kept the cattle off to the north and east, and alternated in taking charge of them. One man was with the herd, while the other got his sleep and did the cooking at the cabin. The mesa was our only neighbor, and the closer we got to it, the more tantalizing it was. It was no longer a blue, featureless lump, as it had been from a distance. Its skyline was like the profile of a big beast lying down, the head to the north, higher than the flanks around which the river curved. The north end we could easily believe impassable, sheer cliffs that fell from the summit to the plain more than a thousand feet, but the south flank, just across the river from us, looked accessible by way of the deep canyon that split the bulk in two from the top rim to the river, then wound back into the solid cube so that it was invisible at a distance, like a mouse track winding into a big cheese. This canyon didn't break the solid outline of the mesa, and you had to be close to see that it was there at all. We faced the mesa on its shortest side, it was only about three miles long from north to south, but east to west it measured nearly twice that distance. Whether the top was wooded we couldn't see. It was too high above us, but the cliffs and canyon on the riverside were fringed with beautiful growth, groves of quaking asps and pinions and a few dark cedars, perched up in the air like the hanging gardens of Babylon. 
At certain hours of the day, those cedars growing so far up on the rocks took on the bluish tints of the cliffs themselves. It was light up there long before it was with us. When I got up at daybreak and went down to the river to get water, our camp would be cold and gray, but the mesa top would be red with sunrise, and all the slim cedars along the rocks would be gold, metallic like tarnished gold foil. Some mornings it would loom up above the dark river like a blazing volcanic mountain. It shortened our days, too, considerably. The sun got behind it early in the afternoon, and then our camp would lie in its shadow. After a while the sunset color would begin to stream up behind it. Then the mesa was like one great ink-black rock against a sky on fire. No wonder the thing bothered us and tempted us. It was always before us, and was always changing. Black thunderstorms used to roll up from behind it and pounce on us like a panther without warning. The lightning would play around it and jab into it so that we were always expecting it would fire the brush. I've never heard thunder so loud as it was there. The cliffs threw it back at us, and we thought the mesa itself, though it seemed so solid, must be full of deep canyons and caverns, to account for the prolonged growl and rumble that followed every crash of thunder. After the burst in the sky was over, the mesa went on sounding like a drum and seemed itself to be muttering and making noises. One afternoon I was out hunting turkeys. Just as the sun was getting low, I came through a sea of rabbit brush, still yellow, and the horizontal rays of light playing into it brought out the contour of the ground with great distinctness. I noticed a number of straight mounds, like plough furrows, running from the river inland. It was too late to examine them. I cut a scrub willow and stuck a stake into one of the ridges to mark it. The next day I took a spade down to the plantation of rabbit brush and dug around in the sandy soil. I came upon an old irrigation main, unmistakable, lined with hard, smooth cobbles and doby cement, with sluices where the water had been let out into trenches. Along these ditches I turned up some pieces of pottery, all of it broken, and arrowheads, and a very neat, well-finished stone pickaxe. That night I didn't go back to the cabin, but took my specimens out to Blake, who was still north with the cattle. Of course, we both knew there had been Indians all over this country, but we felt sure that Indians hadn't used stone tools for a long while back. There must have been a colony of Pueblo Indians here in ancient times, fixed residents like the Taos Indians and the Hopis, not wanderers like the Navajos. To people off alone, as we were, there is something stirring about finding evidences of human labor and care in the soil of an empty country. It comes to you as a sort of message makes you feel differently about the ground you walk over every day. I liked the winter range better than any place I'd ever been in. I never came out of the cabin door in the morning to go after water that I didn't feel fresh delight in our snug quarters and the river and the old mesa up there, with its top burning like a bonfire. I wanted to see what it was like on the other side, and very soon— I took a day off and forded the river where it was wide and shallow, north of our camp. I rode clear around the mesa until I met the river again where it flowed under the south flank. 
On that ride I got a better idea of its actual structure. All the way round were the same precipitous cliffs of hard blue rock, but in places it was mixed with a much softer stone. In these soft streaks there were deep dry watercourses which could certainly be climbed as far as they went, but nowhere did they reach to the top of the mesa. The top seemed to be one great slab of very hard rock, lying on the mixed mass of the base like the top of an old-fashioned marble table. The channels worn out by water ran for hundreds of feet up the cliffs, but always stopped under this great rim rock which projected out over the erosions like a granite shelf. Evidently it was because of this unbroken top layer that the butte was inaccessible. I rode back to camp that night, convinced that if we ever climbed it, we must take the route the cattle took, through the river and up the one canyon that broke down to water level. Chapter 3 We brought the bunch of cattle down to the winter range in the latter part of November. Early in December, the foreman came along with generous provisions for Christmas. This time he brought with him a supercargo, a pitiful wreck of an old man he had picked up at Tarpon, the railroad town thirty miles northeast of us, where the Sitwells bought their supplies. This old man was a castaway Englishman, Henry Atkins by name. He had been a valet and a hospital orderly and a cook, and for many years was a table steward on the anchor line. Lately he had been cooking for a sheep outfit that were grazing in the cattle country, where they weren't wanted. They had done something shady and had to get out in a hurry. They dropped old Henry at Tarpon, where he soon drank up all his wages. When Rapp picked him up there, he was living on handouts. I told him we can't pay him anything, Rapp explained. But if he wants to stay here and cook for you boys till I make my next trip, he'll have plenty to eat and a roof over him. He was sleeping in the livery stable in Tarpon. He says he's a good cook and I thought he might liven things up for you at Christmas time. He won't bother you. He's not got any of the mean ways of a bum. I know a bum when I see one. Next time I come down, I'll bring him some old clothes from the ranch, and you can liar with him if you want to. All his baggage is that newspaper bundle, and there's nothing in it but shoes, a pair of patent leathers, and a pair of sneakers. The important thing is never, on any account, go off skylarking you two and leave him with the cattle. Not for an hour, mind you. He ain't strong enough, and he's got no head. Life was a holiday for Blake and me after we got old Henry. He was a wonderful cook and a good housekeeper. He kept that cabin shining like a playhouse, used to dress it all out with pinion boughs, and trimmed the kitchen shelves with newspapers cut in fancy patterns. He had learned to make up cots when he was a hospital orderly, and he made our bunks feel like a Harvey house bed. To this day that's the best I can say for any bed. And he was such a polite, mannerly old boy, simple and kind as a child. I used to wonder how anybody so innocent and defenseless had managed to get along at all, to keep alive for nearly seventy years in as hard a world as this. Anybody could take advantage of him. He held no grudge against any of the people who had misused him. He loved to tell about the celebrated people he'd been steward to, and the liberal tips they had given him. There with us, where he couldn't get at whiskey, he was a model of good behavior. "'Drink is me weakness,' you might say,' he occasionally remarked apologetically. 
He shaved every morning and was as clean as a pin. We got to be downright fond of him, and the three of us made a happy family. Ever since we'd brought our herd down to the winter camp, the wild cattle on the mesa were more in evidence. They came down to the river to drink oftener and loitered about, grazing in that low canyon so much that we began to call it Cow Canyon. They were fine-looking beasts, too. One could see they had good pasture up there. Henry had a theory that we ought to be able to entice them over to our side with salt. He wanted to kill one for beefsteaks. Soon after he joined us we lost two cows. Without warning they bolted into the mesa, as the foreman had said. After that we watched the herd closer. But a few days before Christmas, when Blake was off hunting and I was on duty, four fine young steers sneaked down to the water's edge through the brush, and before I knew it they were swimming the river, seemed to do it with no trouble at all. They frisked out on the other side, ambled up the canyon, and disappeared. I was furious to have them steal a march on me, and I swore to myself I'd follow them over and drive them back. The next morning we took the herd a few miles east to keep them out of mischief. I made some excuse to Blake, cut back to the cabin, and asked Henry to put me up a lunch. I told him my plan, but warned him not to bear tales. If I wasn't home when Blake came in at night, then he could tell him where I'd gone. Henry went down to the river with me to watch me cross. It had been colder since morning and looked like snow. The old man was afraid of a storm, said I might get snowed in, but I'd got my nerve up, and I didn't want to put off making a try at it. I strapped my blanket and my lunch on my shoulders, hung my boots around my neck to keep them dry, stuffed my socks inside my hat, and we waded in. My horse took the water without any fuss, though he shivered a good deal. He stepped out very carefully, and when it got too deep for him, he swam without panic. We were carried downstream a little by the current, but I didn't have to slide off his back. He found bottom after a while, and we easily made a landing. I waved goodbye to Henry on the other side, and started up the canyon, running beside my horse to get warm. The canyon was wide at the water's edge, and though it corkscrewed back into the mesa by abrupt turns, it preserved this open, roomy character. It was indeed a very deep valley, with gently sloping sides, rugged and rocky, but well grassed. There was a clear trail. Horses have no sense about making a trail, but you can trust cattle to find the easiest possible path and to take the lowest grades. The bluish rock and the sun-tanned grass under the unusual purple-gray of the sky gave the whole valley a very soft color, lavender and pale gold, so that the occasional cedars growing beside the boulders looked black that morning. It may have been the hint of snow in the air, but it seemed to me that I had never breathed in anything that tasted so pure as the air in that valley. It made my mouth and nostrils smart like charged water, seemed to go to my head a little, and produce a kind of exaltation. I kept telling myself that it was very different from the air on the other side of the river, though that was pure and uncontaminated enough. When I had gone up this canyon for a mile or so, I came upon another, opening out to the north, a box canyon very different in character. No gentle slope there. The walls were perpendicular, where they were actually overhanging, 
and they were anywhere from 800 to 1,000 feet high, as we afterward found by measurement. The floor of it was a mass of huge boulders, great pieces of rock that had fallen from above ages back and had been worn round and smooth as pebbles by the long action of water. Many of them were as big as haystacks, yet they lay piled on one another like a load of gravel. There was no footing for my horse among those smooth stones, so I hobbled him and went on alone a little way, just to see what it was like. My eyes were steadily on the ground. A slip of the foot might cripple one. It was such rough scrambling that I was soon in a warm sweat under my damp clothes. In stopping to catch my breath, I happened to glance up at the canyon wall. I wish I could tell you what I saw there, just as I saw it on that first morning through a veil of lightly falling snow. Far up above me, a thousand feet or so, set in a great cavern in the face of the cliff, I saw a little city of stone, asleep. It was as still as sculpture and something like that. It all hung together, seemed to have a kind of composition, pale little houses of stone nestling close to one another, perched on top of each other, with flat roofs, narrow windows, straight walls, and in the middle of the group, a round tower. It was beautifully proportioned, that tower, swelling out to a larger girth a little above the base, then growing slender again. There was something symmetrical and powerful about the swell of the masonry. The tower was the fine thing that held all the jumble of houses together and made them mean something. It was red in color, even on that gray day. In sunlight it was the color of winter oak leaves. A fringe of cedars grew along the edge of the cavern like a garden. They were the only living things. Such silence and stillness and repose immortal repose. That village sat looking down into the canyon with the calmness of eternity. The falling snowflakes, sprinkling the pinions, gave it a special kind of solemnity. I can't describe it. It was more like sculpture than anything else. I knew at once that I had come upon the city of some extinct civilization, hidden away in this inaccessible mesa for centuries preserved in the dry air and almost perpetual sunlight like a fly in amber, guarded by the cliffs and the river and the desert. As I stood looking up at it, I wondered whether I ought to tell even Blake about it, whether I ought not to go back across the river and keep that secret as the mesa had kept it. When I at last turned away, I saw another canyon branching out of this one, and in its wall still another arch, with another group of buildings. The notion struck me like a rifle ball that this mesa had once been like a beehive. It was full of little cliff-hung villages. It had been the home of a powerful tribe, a particular civilization. That night when I got home, Blake was on the river bank waiting for me. I told him I'd rather not talk about my trip until after supper that I was beat out. I think he'd meant to upbraid me for sneaking off, but he didn't. He seemed to realize from the first that this was a serious matter to me, and he accepted it in that way. After supper, when we had lit our pipes, I told Blake and Henry 
as clearly as I could what it was like over there, and we talked it over. The town in the cliffs explained the irrigation ditches. Like all Pueblo Indians, these people had had their farms away from their dwellings. For a stronghold they needed rock, and for farming, soft earth and a water main. "'And this proves,' said Roddy, "'that there must have been a trail into that mesa at the north end, "'and that they carried their harvest over by the ford. "'If the Cow Canyon was the only entrance, "'they could never have farmed down here.' We agreed that he should go over on the first warm day and try to find a trail up to the Cliff City, as we already called it. We talked and speculated until after midnight. It was Christmas Eve, and Henry said it was but right we should do something out of the ordinary. But after we went to bed, tired as I was, I was unable to sleep. I got up and dressed and put on my overcoat and slipped outside to get sight of the mesa. The wind had come up and was blowing the squall clouds across the sky. The moon was almost full, hanging directly over the mesa, which had never looked so solemn and silent to me before. I wondered how many Christmases had come and gone since that round tower was built. I had been to Acoma and the Hopi villages, but I'd never seen a tower like that one. It seemed to me to mark a difference— I felt that only a strong and aspiring people would have built it, and a people with a feeling for design. That cluster of buildings, in its arch, with the dizzy drop into empty air from its doorways, and the wall of cliff above, was as clear in my mind as a picture. By closing my eyes, I could see it against the dark, like a magic lantern slide. Blake got over the river before New Year's Day but he didn't find any way of getting from the bottom of the box canyon up into the cliff city. He felt sure that the inhabitants of that sky village had reached it by a trail from the top of the mesa down, not from the bottom of the canyon up. He explored the branch canyons a little, and found four other villages, smaller than the first, placed in similar arches. These arches we had often seen in other canyons. You can find them in the Grand Canyon— and all along the Rio Grande. Whenever the surface rock is much harder than the rock beneath it, the softer stone begins to crack and crumble with weather just at the line where it meets the hard rim rock. It goes on crumbling and falling away, and in time this washout grows to be a spacious cavern. The cliff city sat in an unusually large cavern. We afterward found that it was 360 feet long and 70 feet high in the center. The red tower was fifty feet in height. Blake and I began to make plans. Our engagement with the Sitwell Company terminated in May. When we turned our cattle over to the foreman, we would go into the mesa with what food and tools we could carry and try to find a trail down the north end where we were sure there must once have been one. If we could find an easier way to get in and out of the mesa, we would devote the summer and our winter's wages to exploring it. From Tarpon, the nearest railroad, we could get supplies and tools and help if we needed it. We thought we could manage to do the work ourselves if old Henry would stay with us. We didn't want to make our discovery any more public than necessary. We were reluctant to expose those silent and beautiful places to vulgar curiosity. Finally, we outlined our plan to Henry 
telling him we couldn't promise him regular wages. "'We won't mention it,' he said, waving his hand. "'I'd ask nothing better than to share your fortunes. In me youth it was my ambition to go to Egypt and see the tombs of the pharaohs.' "'You may get a bad cold going over the river, Henry,' Blake warned him. "'It's bad crossing. Makes you dizzy when you take to swimming. You have to keep your head.' "'I was never seasick in me life,' he declared. "'And at that I've helped in the cook's galley on the anchor line "'when she was fair standing on her head. "'You'll find me strong and active when I'm once broke into the work. "'I come of an enduring family, though, to be sure. "'I've abused me constitution somewhat.' "'Henry liked to talk about his family and the work they'd done "'and the great age to which they'd lived "'and the brandy puddings his mother made. Eighteen we was at all when we sat down at table.' he would often say with his thin, apologetic smile, "'Mother and father, and ten living, and four dead, and two stillborn.' Roddy and I used to strain our imagination, trying to visualize such a family dinner-party. Everything worked out well for us. The foreman showed so much interest in our plans that we told him everything. He insisted that we should stay on at the winter camp as long as we needed a home base, and use up whatever supplies were left. When he paid us off, he sold us our two horses at a very reasonable figure. You've been listening to the first of three parts of Tom Outland's story by Willa Cather from her 1925 novel The Professor's House. I'm Richard Figge, and this has been for Reading Out Loud. That's it for tonight. I hope you'll join me again next week for the discoveries of the second installment. In the meantime, be well, be happy. All the best.